0: Hello and welcome to Why Provenance Matters, the second in a series of podcasts created for Unlimited, a new forum powered by UBS in collaboration with Monocle24. Together, we're unpicking and challenging the conventional notions of wealth, ownership, luxury and legacy. Today, we're putting the ideas of provenance to the test. Where are the things we buy made and by whom? In an age of opaque supply chains, consumers are charmed by an ever closer connection to the production process and to understanding the origins of the things we enjoy. To feel, some would say, a closer connection with the things that we opt for and the things that we choose to own. To explore the idea, we're off on a global journey from the US to Serbia via Russia, Brazil and beyond. To hear from entrepreneurs and cities bringing back long-lost skills and preserving local crafts. From stringed instruments to shoes and Spanish-made produce to perfume. We begin our journey in Rio de Janeiro, where one company making traditional instruments is getting a helping hand from the city itself to keep the craft alive and to remain a carioca affair. Since 1929, Albando Lim Gioro has been a family-run maker of cavaquinhos, a small stringed instrument used in samba that looks and sounds similar to a ukulele. Monocle's Sheena Rossiter visits the family behind the firm to see why help from the city is music to their ears.
1: Samba music is the cornerstone of what makes Brazil's identity so strong and unique. The genre dates back to colonial times in Brazil, when Portuguese settlers began to import African slaves. The term Samba actually comes from the Angolan dance genre Samba characterized by its gyrating hip movements, syncopated rhythms, and percussion-heavy instrumentation. Semba then transformed into samba in Brazil, when these African slaves were still allowed to play their traditional instruments, which slowly evolved over time. And with Caes do Vila Longo port in Rio de Janeiro having been the largest slave port in the Americas, Rio de Janeiro has been known to be the birthplace of the genre, and it's now the theme song for the city's annual carnival parade, what is said to be the largest party in the world. and the main instrument that keeps samba queens dancing at their fast pace, the cavaquinho. In order to keep these instruments being handcrafted and manufactured right here in Rio de Janeiro, City Hall has made one manufacturer, Albandolin Gioro, a preserved business. It's one of over 40 businesses in the city center of Rio, and bundle in Gioro is part of the business value program, where small traditional businesses have been issued this special status.
2: They are a very important economic asset for the city, but they also are a very important cultural asset for the city.
1: That's Washington Farjado, head of the Heritage Institute of Rio de Janeiro, and a special advisor to Rio's Mayor Eduardo Paes on urban issues, a post he's held since 2009. And for the past three years, he's been assessing how to keep Rio's traditional businesses alive.
2: Traditional businesses are very uh, important for the economics of the city because they create a lot of jobs, and they create a lot of jobs for a lot of different generations. We are not talking only about these people that are working here now, but this place as the place that we are now, had created jobs for more than 100 years. And this is very important, this is a very resilient economic
1: network. Here at the manufacturer, five men work on an assembly line crafting cavaquinhos, a process that can take up to three months. But the wait is worth it when you can dance to the sounds of music like this. With a client base that already includes legendary sambista Paulinho D'Aviola, it would seem like the 87-year-old Cavaquinho manufacturer already has all the customers it needs. But for 37-year-old Daniela Soto, the third generation in the family-run business, being classified as part of Rio's heritage sites has helped boost Albandolim de Ouro's profile. What <laughs> changed She tells me that, although it's important to keep the traditional business alive, she admits it's been fundamental to adapt to modern ways of branding the business, like on social networking sites. Part of what has helped these traditional businesses, like this Cavaquinho manufacturer, is working with Sabrai, the country's small business institute to help improve and incentivize small businesses. Here's Washington Farjado to explain more.
2: Unfortunately, we had a very strong bureaucratic culture in Brazil, and it's quite hard to keep a business for more than five years. Five years, it's uh, somehow uh, some type of benchmark for a startup business. And it's impressive that some business had running and working for more than 100 years. I understand this business are heroes, and we should give them a statue, in my opinion. But uh, they don't want a statue, they want uh, profits, they want new customers, they want to grow. And that's why it was very important to work with Sebrae.
1: And Daniela de Soto couldn't agree more on how much being listed as a heritage business has helped boost her business. She says that, aside from the help from Sabrai, having provided new tips on how to manage her business in better ways, just being named as a heritage site has been a major push forward for the shop's marketing, she says. And after the Olympics have rolled out of town here in Rio de Janeiro, with Samba having been on the center stage in the opening and closing ceremonies, the whole world has seen how important this vibrant culture is to Brazil, and how important it is to keep these instrument makers local rather than having them cheaply made elsewhere and brought in as imports.
0: A look there at how one family business plus the city of Rio de Janeiro are keeping an age-old craft of instrument making alive for another generation. Next stop on the provenance tour is in Spain. Meat, milk and manchego cheese are synonymous with Spain and for Spaniards, they're essential daily ingredients. However, the rapid economic growth in the post-dictatorship years has seen traditional farming methods sidelined in favour of more modern practices. Petra Mora is a food-focused venture that's taking the country's pantries back to their roots. It scours the countryside for time-tested culinary treats, offers them a packaging makeover and a lifeline in the form of a cosmopolitan consumer base at its well-appointed supermarket. Monocle's man in Madrid, Liam Aldas, took a stroll with the Petra Mora co-founder Justino Gerafrade, on their bucolic property on the outskirts of the Spanish town of Zamora to find out why Spaniards still crave tradition around the dining table. On a patch of land not far from
3: Spain's border with Portugal cows and sheep are grazing between the oak trees that surround an old stone monastery. It's the middle of the 2016 summer but the scene could easily be from 100 even 500 years ago This however is what Spain's modern food movement looks like and the people behind Petra Amora are at the forefront of a movement that is slowly rekindling the country's culinary provenance
4: we try to recover products that younger people have not tried, have not uh, tasted, think that maybe are uh, hard or maybe are too expensive. We thought is no, we are losing all these products. We want uh, young people to taste the products that our grandparents uh, taste in their in, in their time with the quality that they taste. So we have two people, Mikel Severio and David Aragón, who travel through all Spain uh, looking for suppliers, small cheese productors, uh, wine uh, sellers, maybe cured meat uh, producers in different areas for Spain. Petro Mora also aims to
3: recover ailing Spanish breeds such as the Churra sheep. As Justino
4: explains, this is not just an expression of gastronomic nationalism. The time the people spend in work or outside, so now people cook less at home, want to have many things in the fridge, just to remove food in the microwave and, and just heat it. So we wanted well, try this cheese. It's not. It's made with not pasteurized milk. Will be not the same today than tomorrow. In the winter time, will taste a little bit different. It's not so homogeneous like in the the cheese that is produced in a in a factory with pasteurized milk, but it has a character. A huge part of the, the project, with well, the essence of the project, is recovering
3: the provenance of, of food and food production all around Spain. One of the biggest elements is meat production. How easy has that been trying to recover old practices, farming practices that are more expensive, slower, but
4: uh, at the end of the day produce more quality meat? Once you are a consumer, you have to decide. How many times would you like to, to eat meat during a week? We think that standards in the United States, for example, like a stream, opposite side, with the meat consumption really high, are not good. That doesn't mean that meat is not good. The important thing is the quality of what you eat. Petromora also aims to recover ailing Spanish
3: breeds, such as the Churra sheep. As Justino explains, this is not just an
4: expression of gastronomic nationalism. Churra is a native uh, breed from Spain, of uh, a kind of sheep. I mean, we have like 500 uh, sheep. During many years, uh, Churra Castellana were substituted by Asad, that is, as you said, a, a breed that came from Israel, with a higher production of milk, but with less, uh, less fat which then when you want to make cheese is what uh, makes the cheese good so you have a lot of liters but not enough uh, solids on the on, on the milk do you think that Spain has changed in the sense that for a long time the
3: whole model of, of, in many different sectors was to uh, mass produce, to get rich quickly, even follow the American model in a way. And now because of the crisis, people have kind of changed their mind and changed the way of doing things and now are looking to, to
4: do things well. Do you think that's, that's what's happening in Spain and particularly in food production? I think, yes. I mean, uh, during the, these bubble times, People will go out many times, uh, I mean, like taking your kids to any chains of fast food that we know, and now people is maybe going less times, once in in a week or in the month, but they will eat a burger made with real uh, meat, or, or they will prefer to go less times but with a higher quality
3: Spanish eating habits are transforming, and fortunately for the team behind Petromora, this means the slower food movement is gathering pace. This traditional recipe requires more than just a few time honored ingredients though. While Petromora combines provenance, traditional practices, and a touch of modernity in its packaging and online sales platform, it also relies on the compelling wisdom of renowned chefs and beloved restaurants to get the public on side. It's a whole of country effort, but the story being told and gobbled up isn't new. Much like this old patch of land, it just needs a spirited new generation to take the helm, toil the narrative, and ensure it is passed on through the ages.
0: A look there at how one Spanish outfit is making a business out of showcasing the origins of the nation's finest culinary delights. We're digging deep into the idea and practice of provenance, and next we head to the US. The States may boast the largest apparel market in the world, but it's lost its place as a leading manufacturer of clothing. The birthplace of blue jeans and a classic plain white tee now mostly relies on imported clobber to sell at department stores and mass-market retailers. But one clothing brand in San Francisco is leading efforts to reshore the trade. American Giant is returning lost manufacturing jobs to the former heartland of the American textile industry by making quality sweatshirts and tees at an affordable price. But why is a sense of place so important to them? And is the relative expense of making things in this manner worthwhile? Monocle's Ivan Carvalho visits American Giant's offices and speaks with founder and CEO Bayard Winthrop. Despite all the attention on its booming tech sector, People forget that San Francisco has a history
5: with the garment industry. Still home to Levi Strauss, the company that put denim on the map, and casual clothing chain The Gap, the city has long attracted entrepreneurs looking to reinvent how we shop for clothes. Today, it's the turn of Bayard Winthrop. In 2011, the East Coast native and former financial analyst upturned the conventional wisdom of the apparel industry with its emphasis on low-quality goods produced by overseas manufacturing. He makes long-lasting garments that carry a Made in the USA label and sells them online. It all started when he decided to re-engineer a staple item in the wardrobe of today's tech worker, the hooded sweatshirt.
6: I think it's easy for people to forget that 30 or 40 years ago people used to come to the U.S. to buy American-made goods not just because of the American-made label, but because they were of the finest quality and great value. When I grew up in the 70s, I was really struck by... The sort of presence of great American products, you know, I think one I talk about a lot is that I, I still have the old KitchenAid mixer that my grandmother had that still runs like a clock, you know, and it's you know, it's hard to find that in either, you know, homeware appliances all the way through to the clothing I grew up around. I remember very clearly getting my first Champion sweatshirt that was made in North Carolina, that was something my mom could afford that uh, that lasted forever, and and here I was. 30 years later in a in a market where we were it seemed to be able to do all sorts of interesting innovative things around technology and everything else and being in San Francisco you're surrounded by that that sort of ethic and that and that optimism around saying kind of everything is possible here and yet we were unable to make great quality clothing in the US anymore his pursuit to perfect the great
5: american sweatshirt for his first men's model it took him a year and a half to get the fit and weave just right saw him end up in the epicenter of America's once-great textile industry, centered around the
6: cotton fields and mills of North and South Carolina. I felt that sweatshirts were an iconic American silhouette. Um, Other than the blue jean, probably the most iconic American silhouette. The sweatshirt specifically, I had in my mind the 1970s sweatshirt I spoke about earlier, about this 100% cotton, dry hand feel, tight-knit, beautiful fabric made in the Carolinas, which really is the sort of historical center of the knitwear as capital, the capital, knitwear capital of the world. In terms of the research that you did, did you find it
5: difficult to get the sourcing for the cotton? I mean, how much had the apparel industry suffered uh, since now we've seen all this outsourcing to, to Asia and elsewhere?
6: There's an interesting thing that's happening. And I'll, I'll talk now just about the Carolinas, which is the, where the bulk of our manufacturing happens, but it is a true statement about the country as a whole, which is As recently as 20 or 30 years ago, about 90% of the apparel consumed by Americans was made in the U.S. Now it's something less than 5%. So there's been a massive shift. That being said, there is still a huge amount of, of human talent and physical plant in those areas. So if you drive around the Carolina countryside, what you find really quickly, you find sewing and knitting and dyeing and finishing businesses still going, albeit struggling but still going and lots of understanding and knowledge and expertise there. So I think we've benefited a ton by that. Mm -hmm. We also had to uh, change an awful lot of thinking among the, the suppliers that we worked with. We almost had to retrain quality back into them. And that sounds a little bit condescending. I don't mean it that way. It was more about, they had gotten so used to producing product that they refer to as ton and gun product really cheap, single-needle stitching, very basic manufacturing, and the result of that is fraying, failing, twisting, not color fastness in the, in the garments themselves, it basically looks like a lot of what people's experiences are now with apparel, which is stuff that doesn't last more than a month or two or a few washes, and that really had become standard in a lot of the North Carolina facilities when we first started working with them. I get asked a lot, what's it like running a fashion business? And I, my response to that is I don't run a fashion business, I run a manufacturing business. And what I mean by that is that we, we try to make great things and making great things is about the making of it, right? It's not about the sort of the fun stuff at the front end. It's about the grinding work, getting into the elemental parts that result in a great product. You know, American Giant really is focused on this idea of U.S. manufacturing at scale. But trying to establish a real change of thinking about the scalability and viability of US manufacturing.
0: Now, from manufacturing in the heartland of the US to the renewal of an old and much loved brand in Russia. The Soviet Union was better known for manufacturing shoddy knockoffs than producing premium goods. But one product, more than any other, found a firm footing Chinese made canvas and rubber shoes. A communist response to the success of Converse sneakers in the much-maligned US of the time. Today, one man has stepped up demand for this old classic, and Monocle's Alexei Korilov explains how and why he did it.
4: The summer of 1957.
7: Thousands of foreign delegates are in Moscow for the World Festival of Youth and Students, changing the lives of Soviet citizens
8: forever. So, uh all these beautiful people come from all over the world and they have some um, fashion clothes, they look uh, not the same as our Russian guys and uh, they uh, wear jeans, sneakers, so it, it was much, uh, much more freedom in their outfit. This exposure
7: to international fashion and culture, followed by a further opening up of borders and relaxation of censorship under Nikita Khrushchev, left the Soviets wanting more. New modern clothing and shoes, at the very least. In 1965, some of those wishes came true. That was the year when, in a show of communist solidarity, the Soviet Union teamed up with China to make canvas and rubber shoes. They were called Cha, two balls, the name emphasizing their multi-sport versatility.
8: These shoes was sold millions of pairs because it was foreign shoes. The quality was higher because in China this industry developed much better than in Russia. and uh, The products have uh, the um, feeling like something from abroad and uh, this is one of the key factors uh, that uh, it was so uh, popular.
7: Like Converse sneakers in the West, Dvamichar quickly transcended their original purpose to become a fashion item in their own right. But their appeal dwindled by the late 1980s as Adidas, Nike and other capitalist brands began making inroads in the Soviet Union. But now this man, the one I've been talking to, has given them a new lease of life.
8: Uh, my name is Evgeny Raykov. Uh, I'm a founder of Devamicha. Two Balls. It's two Balls, yeah. Two Balls, uh, Russian iconic sneakers. We don't change anything in design and we just all the elements we carefully save and just reproduce them. All from the last uh, outsole, patterns, laces, all you see is the same shoes as it was 40 years ago.
7: What's more all production is still based in China using the very same machinery and technology.
8: Be- before uh, making this uh, product I work a lot in fashion business and clothes business. And uh, I see many examples all over the world of uh, brands that come back and so on. And uh, all of the time I was thinking uh, about the product that can have some uh, very strong Russian identity. The same situation with uh, Russian uh, products, you know, in all uh, the industries, for example, in food industry, we have a lot of products from the past, like. Jubilee cookies, all of the brands now making some original lines, some heritage, and they say, oh, this is working uh, very well for business. Vamichar are now all over Moscow's indie stores,
7: and Evgeny hopes to soon go national and then international.
8: He says,
7: now in Russian, that the success of his project is the result of months and years of painstaking work and
8: research. But most importantly, he says, even though his sneakers almost
7: exactly replicate the original Soviet ones, this is not a throwback to the past, it's a step
0: into the future.
7: For Russia, for the world.
0: And finally, on our perusal through the world of provenance, we turn to fragrance. The perfume market may evoke images of pongy ateliers or crammed duty-free shops and airports, but before there were brands, there were craftsmen making these olfactory objects. And today, a handful of these artisans are keeping the tradition alive. In Serbia's capital of Belgrade, Nenad Jovanov is the last of his kind, a third-generation perfumier who fears the days of custom scents may be coming to an end. Monocle's Guy Delornay, a man with a nose for a good story went along to meet him
9: it's often said that smell is the sense which triggers the strongest memories. Well, this is certainly the place to test that theory. It's a shop called Sava on Kralja Petra Street in the center of Belgrade. This is one of the oldest streets in Serbia's capital city, and Sava is one of the oldest shops. As you look in the window, there's a very old school display of crystal bottles with pale-coloured, translucent liquids in them and that really does give the game away. This is a traditional perfumier and it's been in the hands of the same family for more than 60 years.
10: Uh, My name is Nenad Jovanov. I am the third generation I'm more or less third generation in the business, more or less because first it was my uncle, then my father, then my mother,
9: and then uh, came myself. A lot of people will not have seen a shop like yours, particularly living in modern cities. What is it exactly that you do here? You have all these rows of uh, brown glass bottles... Uh, little pipettes, test tubes. What's this all about? What I'd like to say is that this is a
10: special kind of work because I don't just trade in cosmetics and perfumes, I actually make them. And uh, the fact that I'm alone in this business means that it probably has no future and I'm just here because of tradition and for the sake of the memory of my parents who came before me. Uh, Would you believe it if I said that uh, although Belgrade used to be a great deal smaller than it is now it once had 22 shops just like this one and they all gradually closed one by one until this one was the only one that remained
9: What's the secret to making a perfume, a scent, a cologne that somebody will want to wear, which will, which will bring something a little bit special into their lives. Uh, and, and, and what's different about these perfumes that you
10: uh, make here? Making a scent, a perfume, is difficult and delicate work. Because you, first of all, you've got to have a good teacher and then you've got to have a keen sense of smell. And I was fortunate in that my dad had one of the greatest teachers of all time in Belgrade, Mr. Milanovic. He studied perfume making in France as an apprentice, and so he came back to Belgrade. And I'm happy to have been able to inherit my dad's talents. But to be able to make a bespoke scent for an individual customer, you need to carry in your shop at least 70 or 80 individual essential oils so that you can use them to combine combine into a scent for a particular person. Good morning. Good morning.
9: What sort of people do you have coming through the door? Who are the people, who are the customers today... ...who want one of your custom scents? Absolutely all categories.
10: So there's all sorts of people, from people of modest means... ...who wouldn't otherwise have the money to buy a brand name perfume... uh, ...all the way up to really well-heeled people... ...who are looking for something special for themselves...
9: Or are simply looking to save some money so compared to commercial scents what's the difference with what you make here Uh, Uh, most
10: people look for what's in fashion but there's a fair number of those who come to my shop who are looking for a a well-made scent that speaks to them and that's something that they like regardless of how old it might be or how much out of fashion it might be
2: <laughs>
10: it's part and parcel of the service for the perfumier to actually uh, spray scent onto the customer uh, at the end of the customer's visit.
9: So, do you have any hope, Nenad, that maybe somebody will decide that there needs to be a continuation of a bespoke perfumier in Belgrade? Uh,
10: Unless regulations change, I'll be history. And there has been talk of the the government supporting traditional crafts and arts. But unless something changes, and we really haven't seen much change of late, then uh, it will be the
9: end for this type of shop. For now, the Sava shop is still open and still has a regular flow of customers. But there may be a time limit on this particular piece of Belgrade tradition. So perhaps don't leave your visit too long.
0: From a last-of-his-kind perfumier in Belgrade to carnival-ready Cavaquinhos in Brazil, from manufacturing in America's heartland to the revival of a Soviet-era shoe brand and to a Spanish company calling attention to the country's rich culinary traditions. Provenance then is something of an enigma. Businesses that invest in keeping the supply chain simple and their brands honest are, if we're honest, unlikely to ever make the biggest profit margin or procure the cheapest services. But there's another calculation at play here. Businesses that give back to the cities they work from or communities they grew up in are able to tap into a market and a feeling among consumers that transcends profit and loss.